Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. This is our ninth episode of our first series, and probably the last. We are winding down to the end of the theory of everything that lies behind Accidental Gods, and we're moving towards season two, where we'll begin to branch out and start talking to some of the people who are living this, who are at the cutting edge of everything that we're going to need to do if we're going to move towards conscious evolution. But there's one last area of exploration that I want to really dig into. It's been coming up in some of the last podcasts, and it's been particularly coming up in the membership programme. And I think if it's proving something very fertile to the people who are really diving into this day on day, then hopefully it will be too for all of you out there in podcast land. So this is emotions, what we feel, how we feel it, and how and why we can begin to shape what we feel so that our defaults don't shape us. We've already touched on this briefly in podcast seven with the AMTP, Attitude, Mood, Temperament, Personality Trait. And from that, we know that if we can change our attitudes, we can change our temperaments, change our moods, change our personality traits. And that's great in theory. But we actually need to understand how to do that in practice. So that's what this is about. It's also, I think it's possibly not obvious why we want to do that. So to go right back to the beginning, the premise of Accidental Gods is that we are ripe for evolutionary change, that the next evolutionary shift could be one of consciousness, consciously chosen, and that the absolute key to this is that we are able to take our place in the web of life, the web of consciousness, as fully connected nodes of consciousness, as fully connected beings, where we are able fully to feel everything that flows from everything that is conscious around us. Connecting and feeling are synonymous. And we need to be in a point where everything that we feel touches our awareness, where we can see it, where we can sense it, where we know where our baselines are and therefore know where something rises and falls. And there's a place where we need also to be able to know what's mine and what's yours, because a lot of what we feel is influenced by the people around us by the world around us. We will get to a point where the distinctions between me and other fall away, where we become a unity with the rest of the world. But before we get to that, we do need to be able to distinguish between what I am feeling from inside and what I am feeling from outside. And in conjunction with that, at the point when the free flow of feeling begins to emerge from us, there is a point where we begin to fall in love with living, with the process of being alive, with ourselves, with everything and everyone that we meet, and with our connections to the web. And I want you to think for a moment, what would it feel like if I were totally in love with the process of being alive, 
in every moment of my waking and my sleeping life. How would my world be different? Because running myself as an experiment of this, and I am far from achieving it every moment of every day of my waking and sleeping life, but in those moments when I do, the world opens up and I open up with it, and all of the textures become different. All of my senses become sharper, my vision becomes sharper, and I have minus 11 vision on both sides, so becoming sharper is quite an achievement. And it doesn't last for long, and I haven't thrown away my glasses yet. But that sense of the world as a completely magical place, and it's not a value judgment of good magic or bad magic, it's just the process of being alive, the experience of being alive, is such a source of total wonder that I am in love with that. And this is such a huge difference from where I have been. I spent most of my 20s with a drip set up, ready to go. I was a vet. I had really easy access to ways of escaping if the world got too painful. And the world seemed very painful for quite a lot of that time. And I was aware at a really core level that it could have been a lot worse. And that, I think, is one of the core reasons why I never actually turned the drip set on for any serious length of time. But it was there, and I was not a happy bunny. And yes, I did go into therapy. And one of the things to say is this podcast is not a therapy session. If you want therapy, if you need therapy, please go and get it. In our world where our elders are no longer our confidants and our mentors, being in the company of someone who has mined the depths of their own being and has been taught how to hold a space for you to do the same, that is absolutely beyond price. But in between sessions, or if you don't need or don't want therapy, if you think you can work on your own, there is still an awful lot of this that we can do. So to begin with, I want to look at the parameters, what we mean and how we use the language. And so right at the core, we are feeling beings. I don't think this should be contentious, but it does still seem to be. I was teaching a while ago on a course about the, the neuroscience of narratives. We can't change the narratives that shape our world, and I think we need to do that, unless we understand how narratives arise, what they are, where they come from, and particularly how language shapes us. And so I had been explaining the extent to which our limbic systems rule our decision-making, and then we layer rationality over the top so that we can pretend to ourselves that we are making rational decisions. If you ever want to know more about this, then Jonathan Haidt's book is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I will put a link in the show notes. Well worth a read if you want to know some of the hardcore science behind this. So anyway, we got to the end of two days of exploring the scaffolding of what narratives are and how we might shift them. And we were in the, the kind of end stage conversations. And a really distressed student sat me down and said, but you have to accept that we're rational beings. You have to, or we're finished. And it was one of the most concrete examples of someone whose amygdala had been totally triggered by the suggestion that triggering our amygdalas is what rules our behaviour. And it was really sad because I couldn't agree with the contention that we're rational beings because we're not. 
We're pro-social, interdependent, feeling beings, and our desperate desire to turn ourselves into rational, independent, isolated individuals isn't doing us, or our communities, or our world any good. It's not how we're wired. But that need to cut ourselves off is completely understandable. Feelings are wild, unpredictable, glorious, passionate sweeps of great depth and breadth and height. And most of our culture teaches us that it's not safe to feel. And we end up afraid that if we take the lid off our grief, say, that we'll never get it back on again. And that was my fear, even through decades of therapy, that if I ever really started to cry, I would never stop. And it took me a week in a roundhouse in West Wales on a shamanic retreat, really to learn to let go and to start to heal. And that was over 20 years ago. And what I want to do now, what I'm trying to do, is to bring you some of 20 years of learning in ways that help you get there a bit faster. Partly because I don't think it should take 20 years and partly because I'm not sure we have 20 years to do that kind of experimenting. So what we're trying to do is to embrace the full spectrum of feeling. And to do that, we need to understand what the full spectrum might be. And one of my very early teachers said, there are only two feelings. There's love and there's fear. And she was really wise. And she also said that if we don't learn to balance in the moment, then we end up locked between our fear of the future and our bitterness of the past. And actually right there is another feeling. Bitterness is different, I think, to fear. But still, the love-fear dichotomy is useful. And if we reframe it to say that there are feelings that leave us open-hearted, full-hearted, strong-hearted, clear-hearted, which is where we want to go, and others that do the opposite, that shrink, close, contain, wall off our hearts, then we're aiming for that point where we are in love with being alive every moment of the day. And the thing to say is, obviously, if you can do that, please keep going. And please get in touch so that I can come and interview you and you can tell us what it's like and how you do it. Because for a lot of us, even once we know that it's what we want to do, it's really hard. So we need to find easier ways in. And we're back to nuance again. We know from basic neuroscience that fear is the big thing that triggers our amygdalas faster than anything else. But then we also know that disgust is the next biggest trigger because for so much of human history, finding food and water was the thing that mattered most. And it mattered also that however hungry we were, we did not eat the liquefying body of the mammoth that had been dead for a month that we found at the side of the track. And we didn't drink from the little stream with half a dozen bodies further upriver. So we have fear and disgust, and if we look at the other things that trigger our amygdalas, we get quite fast to rage and horror and despair and envy and jealousy and spite and powerlessness or power over and guilt and shame. And there is a huge range of things that leave us feeling unsafe and untrusting. But then on the other side of the coin, if we sit down and we do this in some of our Rewilding the Soul courses, 
sit down and write down every positive emotion that we can possibly think of, everything that leads us heart open, clear-hearted, strong-hearted, full-hearted, then we get to exhilaration and joy and compassion and gratitude and hope and love and wonder and awe and curiosity and pride and companionship and courage. And the last time we did this, I think we got to 114 more or less distinct feelings that we could name and that we could believe that we could feel that we're all on the heart-opening side of the spectrum. The place where we feel safe in being ourselves. And it's this, the feeling of safety that is crucial to our being able to feel at all. All of the current work on trauma from Bessel van der Kolk to Stephen Porges with the polyvagal theory to Peter Levine, I will put links to all of these in the show notes, all of the core work from these say that the absolute key to feeling anything is learning that we can trust that it's safe to be in our bodies. Trauma dissociates us. It teaches us not to be in our bodies. It teaches us not to feel, and certainly not to feel anything heart-opening. So the first step to healing is to bring all parts of ourselves back together again. We need to become whole, which is the definition of healed. So then we need to know how we can do this, how we can actually do it on a day-to-day basis. And first, by wanting to. Because human intent is the single most powerful force on the planet. And if we can learn to hone it cleanly and to set it, then we can do whatever we choose. So we need to know that we want to, and we need to believe that we can. And the only way to do that is by testing, trying it out, see does it work, and not expecting huge leaps in the first place. This is not your know, magic wand thinking, wave your magic wand and the entire world changes. This is sliver by sliver, breath by breath, iota by iota, incremental change, until we look back a year from now, and then we can see the big changes. Do not expect magic overnight. If it happens, that's great. Please tell me. But success comes in small pieces. And so what we need to try, one of the things we need to try, is rooting ourselves in our own bodies, learning that it is okay to be here now. And breathing is one way to do that. As long as we don't frighten ourselves by attending to our breath. When I first started this, I tend to lock my own shock in my diaphragm, and I can quite soon get to the place where I can't breathe at all by thinking that I have to learn how to breathe. So if you can manage not to do that cycle, it would be good. You can get through it. It just takes a long time. One of the ways that I found to get through it is what we call 5, 10, 20 breathing. And this comes directly out of neuroscience. So the way to do it is that you breathe in through your nose for a slow count of five. So ideally, you take five seconds and a second is always longer than you think it's going to be. And then out through your mouth for an equally slow count of ten. So that means that you're modulating your out-breath. You come in for quite a slow count of five And then you're breathing out even more slowly, twice as slowly. 
so that the same air that you breathe in lasts for your out-breath. little pause in between the in-breath and the out-breath. And so, in the end, ideally, this takes 15 seconds. Five seconds in, 10 seconds out. And you do this 20 times. So this takes, if you're doing five seconds in, 10 seconds out, a 15-second cycle. So you're doing four in a minute. And if you do it 20 times, that takes five minutes. And at the end of that, it's quite hard to still be panicking. Even for me, it's quite hard for my diaphragm to still be a rigid steel plate. And then when you're there, when you're able to breathe as freely as you are able to breathe without judgment of how freely that is, anchor yourself in the five senses. What can you see? Not just what can you see as movement in your peripheral vision, which is where we get to when we're in sympathetic overload. What can you actually see? The texture of the walls, the textures of your own hands, the floor, whatever is immediately in front of you, really look at it. What can you hear? What can you smell? What can you taste? And crucially, what can you feel? Physically, to begin with, can you feel your clothes? Are you sitting down? Can you feel the chair? Can you feel your feet on the floor? If you pinch your fingers together, how does it feel? Can you feel the air on your skin? of your face, of your hands, of anything else that's exposed. And when you have an anchoring in that, what can you feel in your heart space? What can you feel physically first there and then emotionally? Take a moment to feel it if you're doing this. If you're driving, keep your eye on the road. But if you're sitting down, what are you feeling? And in the beginning, we're just looking at feeling. What is feeling like, because for some of us our feeling is quite an alien thing and we have to sneak up on it like we were sneaking up to see a deer or a fox in a clearing and watch it very gently and very quietly, just breathing, watching the feeling go through and give it time, this is not a one-hit thing. Practice this as often as you need until you can actually feel something, whatever it is without judgment, and without having to hold on to it, and without having to rehearse the narrative that got us there. A lot of our feelings come with very rehearsed narratives. That's part of the stuff that fires together, wires together. And we don't need to rehearse that. Just watch the feeling, let it flow through, breath by breath, until you are familiar with feeling. And then we can begin to curate what we feel. So that means we need to be able to choose a feeling, which means we need to be able to find what that feeling is like. And in the beginning, I was told that I needed to feel compassion or love or joy. And I would, because I was doing shamanic work, I would look up and see a hawk, maybe. And I would notice a hawk. I'd get around to noticing. And then I would think, oh, I should be feeling joy. It's a hawk. And some perceptible length of time later, I would feel a kind of weak, vapid, wilting-like. And it wasn't that I didn't know how to feel joy, it was that I was not used to feeling it, and I certainly wasn't used to feeling it on command. That has changed now, but it has taken a seriously long time. So the short-circuiting of this 
is that we begin to identify feelings through the day. Or if we've had a bit of practice at that, we identify a feeling that we believe we can authentically feel, something that we can evoke. So as you go through the day, notice the moments of like, or a little tiny fragment of awe or wonder, or gratitude, or joy, or love, or compassion, or exhilaration, or courage, or pride, anything. Little flickering moments. And remember what it was that evoked it. And then we do need to spend some time alone, just sitting, with that evocation, with that memory. If it's a memory of something that happened in your childhood, that's completely fine. It doesn't have to be something that happened this morning, or last night, or yesterday. But pick one feeling that you think you can authentically remember, and that you can authentically evoke. And if it's just like, that's fine. And then build that memory, and light it as a spark in your heart space, or set it as a flower in your heart space, or as a warmth, or something that you can grow breath by breath until you can feel it. So for me, it feels as if my heart space is growing bigger, warmer. It feels a temperature difference, and it feels as if there's a vibration in my heart. It's it's kind of thrumming and swelling, and the feeling within it is enlarging to the point where it spills out and spills over, beyond me, into the house, into the land, into the town, into the whole of the boundaries of this nation, and then beyond that, into the world. And yes, this is what pretty much every spiritual path is aiming for. That's not a bad thing. We are aiming for that. But it can take a while. Just anchor in feeling and celebrate the feeling. And if you're able to do that, then you can begin to anchor it Touch your fingers together in a way that you don't normally touch, say thumb to fourth finger, or all of your four fingers on the heel of your thumb, something that you don't normally do, that you are doing consciously now, so that you can do it consciously at other times, to remember this. You're doing a little bit of firing and wiring of a slightly different neural network, so that you can recall it when you need to or when you want to. I want to say a little bit while we're here about feelings that we can evoke. This is really personal. Often we are told that gratitude is the easiest feeling and that we need to practice gratitude practice in the evening and list the 20 things that we are grateful for in the day. This has never worked for me. I think I have a kind of deep layer of cynicism that that this just doesn't work. But I have found that over time, evoking authentic gratitude has come more easily. And I went through the phase of gratitude being like writing the kind of thank you letters I was made to write to my grandmother when I was a child. Dear Granny, thank you for the drum set. Daddy says he's going to kill you the next time he sees you because I haven't stopped playing it since Christmas morning. It is very lovely. I also got a bicycle and a cake. I don't think that ever happened, but whatever. It was a completely meaningless thing that I just wrote. And it had no sense of gratitude within it at all. And then I progressed to, my goodness, I am grateful that I am a woman in a fairly advanced Western democracy of sorts. I was not married off to some warlord at the age of 12 and died in my early 20s in my seventh pregnancy. I really am grateful for that. 
But that's a comparative gratitude, and it's not really gratitude. It's just, my goodness, life could be much worse. It's pretty blinking awful, but it could be worse. That's not gratitude. Gratitude for me comes along with the absolute wonder of being alive, with the genuine joy in the moment, with going up the hill and doing morning ceremony and thanking everything that takes part in my life for the gift of life, for the gift of this life in this moment. And when I can do that in a way that feels heart open, then I am absolutely consumed with a gratitude that feels like a wildfire and that lasts right through most of the rest of the day. So if gratitude practice works for you, then that is a way in. Go for it. So this is what we're doing. Gradually getting to know that it's safe to be in our physical bodies. And again, if you need help, if it begins to feel really unsafe, please find a therapist. That's what they're there for. And they can help. But in the meantime, we're learning that it's safe to feel. We're learning that feelings run in cycles and we don't have to get washed away by our own despair or our grief or our guilt of everything that's happening in the planet. Because we have a choice. Yes, things are bad. But my feeling guilt is not necessarily adding to the positive construct of the planet. And if instead I can feel gratitude and compassion and wonder and joy at the sheer magic of being alive, then for me that not only changes the physiology of who I am, it changes the energy that I bring into the world. It changes the way that I interact with everybody and everything. And I would rather be a gateway to the compassion of the universe, a lens through which the compassion that is the heart-mind of the universe can shine into the world than a block to that. And not just a block. I don't really want to walk around being a little well of guilt and despair and grief and all of the things that used to define my way of being in the world. I have a choice and I choose compassion. And if you want to as well, then I strongly recommend the breathing. But if you can find other ways, whatever it takes to begin to feel the feelings that open your heart so that breath by breath, moment by moment, feeling by feeling, our heart spaces can begin to expand. So that's it for this week. And also that's it for our first series. Thank you for staying this far. We said in podcast one that we were going to lay out the theory in this first series and that's what we've done. And now we're going to stretch out and begin to talk to the other people who are walking parallel paths, who are being the change we need to see in the world. The thought leaders and makers and doers who are at that cutting edge where science and spirituality meet, politics and philosophy, creativity and art, and all of the ways we might create resilience in ourselves and in our world. So in the next podcast, which is also next week, I'll be talking to the renegade economist, Della Duncan, who is also a facilitator of Joanna Macy's Three Pillars of the Great Turning, which I hope will provide a framework for all of that second series. So until then, huge thanks to Cara C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. 
to Faith Tillery for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team of Accidental Gods. And to you for listening. If you like us, five stars and a review on the podcast app of your choice is always nice. But more than that, please share the link with everyone you know who wants the world to be a more equitable and sustainable place. If you want to find out more, if you want to read the show notes or the blogs that arise from the podcast, or if you want to join the membership programme, we're accidentalgods.life on the web and on various forms of social media. So that's it for now. Thank you for being there. And until next time, goodbye.